and let us pray as we look at this, um, this passage together. I'm aware it's a, it's a, it's a challenge, it's a, it's a hard passage in one sense, so let's pray that the Lord would help us um, and give us soft hearts as we look at it. Father in heaven, thank you that you know each of us better than we know ourselves. Thank you that you know what we need to hear this morning, and so pray that you would be with us as we study these verses. Father, as we often pray, we don't simply want a better grasp of the passage, but we want to know you better as a result. And so would you be at work in us, we pray. Soften our hearts. Help us to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Lewis, if you were here last week, remember he started off the, this next section for us in Second Corinthians and he asked us a really good question or a question that perhaps Paul was being asked and that was, why keep going? Paul, seriously Paul, you've had three shipwrecks, you've had beatings, you've had lashings, you've had hardships and in your own words you say you feel hard pressed on every side, you feel perplexed and persecuted and struck down and the, the Corinthians are there with the whispers of these so-called super apostles Listening, speaking into their ears, surely, Paul, you've got something wrong. Why keep going? The Lord can't be behind this, Paul, because it is so hard. Clearly, maybe you need to draw stumps, do something else. For a faith that seems to be the only correct one, the, the only way of knowing the true God who made the world, is this an example of successful ministry, Paul? Really? Doesn't seem quite right, does it? What advice would you give to Paul if he came to say, let me tell you about my life at the moment. What do you think I should do? What would we say? Paul, it, it doesn't look great. Is, is God really blessing your ministry, Paul? And so why bother? Keep going. Paul, you are clearly a, a good tent maker. I mean, you seem to be able to live off not very much work at times. Maybe the Lord is directing you in that direction again. Or you clearly had a successful academic career. Maybe, maybe have a word with the academy again. Opportunities there, perhaps. I presume that would involve fewer shipwrecks and beatings. Maybe we have similar questions at times. Maybe we feel that our attempts to live for Jesus are, are flawed, and we get it wrong again, and we muck up, and we think, is, is this really the, the right path to be on? Maybe we feel our attempts to speak about Jesus get us nowhere. We clam up on what to say, or how to respond, or actually if we've got anything to say to our, our neighbours, or our colleagues, or our friends, and so it's just easier to keep stum to not bother. Maybe that's you. I'm aware in, in this room there are a number of people who work for different Christian organisations, parachurches and churches based in Oxford. So it could be through formal ministry situations you're thinking, do I have anything to offer? But more likely it's that we're all to be those prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have. We're all to be those who should have conversation that is gracious and salty, making the most of every opportunity. And so tomorrow morning we're in the queue at co-op. Or that conversation with your next-door neighbour over the, the back garden fence, assuming the rain stops. 
or the family event that you're dragged along to and you find yourself sat next to auntie whoever and you're thinking, do I open my mouth and talk about Jesus? Or your local book group or sports team or knitting club or whatever it is for you. Or parents at the school gates. Or colleagues at lunch next week. Or assuming it happens and people come, our community barbecue straight after this. Or as you begin even to pray about inviting for Christmas in a couple of months' time, perhaps still the easiest invite of the year for us. And yet maybe we think, why bother? Especially when it's hard. Especially when people look at us like we're weird. Especially when we've tried in the past and maybe things haven't gone so well. And we think, well... Maybe next time I'll, I'll just not bother then. And I think in our, our passage for this morning, Paul gives us at least four brief, compelling and convicting reasons why we ought to keep going. Why opening our mouth is a good thing to do to speak about Jesus. Let me just remind you or, or catch you up on the story so far in Corinth. I'm aware that people, maybe this is your first time in the series or you're visiting us or... Um, you've got a memory like me and you struggle to remember what happened last week. Um, but let me just give you a bit of a background as to where we've come so far. Do you remember there are teachers in Corinth who are catching the eye of the Corinthian church? There's a proverbial glitz and glamour and razzmatazz. There seems to be impressive rhetoric and speeches and, and they look powerful. They look, they look like the kind of people we would like to follow. We would like to be like maybe. Paul calls them later on in the letter super apostles. It seems to be slightly sarcastic. And they look amazing. And then you look at Paul and he's a bit weak and a bit weedy and he keeps getting shipwrecked. And, and even though he spent 18 months with them, pouring himself out for them, investing in them and loving them, the Corinthians seem to be a little bit like self-conscious teenagers embarrassed of dad. And that strange message about a man dying on a cross, are you serious? That, that's not going to set the world on fire, is it? That's not going to do anything. And yet Paul says he will keep going and he will never give up because he understands God and he understands how the gospel works. And so four reasons from Paul this morning as to why he keeps going. Think of them as four things that made Paul tick and keep on ticking. The little pep talk he gives himself. Firstly, why keep going? Because we fear the Lord. If you're a note taker, this is verse 9 to 13. It seems to me the heart of it there on page 1161, the heart of it is in verse 11. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. Right fear has a place in the Christian life. There's a right fear that has a place in the Christian life. And what Paul is doing is he seems to be looking ahead to the reality of standing before the judgment seat of Christ. And it's a challenging thing, but, but his own awe and fear of that judgment by Christ motivates him to minister for Christ. Because he fears the Lord, he will seek to persuade others. He's not quivering there with, with exam conditions. 
Paul, have you said enough? Have you spoken to enough people? Have you knocked on enough doors? Have you passed? Are you in because of what you've earned? No. But rather, he seems to be looking ahead to the account that we will all give before our God to answer for the way in which we've used the gifts he's given us. So it actually continues on from verse 10 last week, and I have just scooped in verse 9 and 10 as well because it's the start of a little section. But you remember with Lewis again last week, for we must all appear, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. It's not a judgment of salvation, if you like, it's a judgment of stewardship. His, his fear is not knees knocking, unsure as to how the meeting will go, but because of an aura and a respect for Jesus that, that shapes how he spends himself. It's not a question of being in or out here, but a question of, well done, good and faithful servant. And they're the words that matter, aren't they? So often we care about what others say of us, their opinions of us, their evaluation. We fear them, their verdict of us. And so our our mouths at times just don't open as they ought to. And yet those words then from the Lord Jesus Christ will put the little words now from those around us in the shade. Which means it's quite a sobering motivation as we begin, isn't it? It's sobering because when we trust Christ, we're not called to a life of aimlessness or meandering or lack of purpose, but we're called to be faithful with what he's given us. And one day we'll have to tell him what we did with it. Maybe he'll say, I gave you wonderful news. What what did you do with that? Maybe he'll say, I gave you time and energy. Did Did you employ them for me? I gave you gifts, talents, skills, opportunities. Did Did you use them? I think these are important questions. Paul's motivation to speak, to continue at this point, is a future judgment where he will stand before Christ to receive what is due to him for what he's done in the body. Maybe an opportunity this week to discuss that over home groups. It's the kind of thing we don't talk about very much. But maybe to help each other think how we can be better at Speaking to friends, to colleagues, to neighbours, to family, to, to challenge people, to invite people. Wanting to persuade as Paul does. It seems to me the contrast, though, is, is with these impressive apostles as well that the Corinthians are listening to. That seems to be implicitly there. They seem to be all about the now and the horizontal and, and looking good on the outside and, and boasting about it. Their motivation perhaps is the verdict of others, the fear of others. And so Paul will say, what we are is plain to God. End of um, second half of verse 11. What we are is plain to God. And I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. You see, you read between the lines, these super apostles, they commend themselves to the Corinthians. Remember the the letters of commendation we spoke of. They take pride in what is seen. Paul, he doesn't care. 
He just has a fear of the Lord that motivates his ministry. Looking for the verdict of the Lord rather than the verdict of others. And so if we've grown cynical, tired, disillusioned, and we've stopped bothering even to to speak to others, we've stopped even praying for opportunities to speak to others, maybe we think, well, actually, I'm not sure God can use me. If that's the case, then maybe this fear of the Lord, verse 11, needs to re-enter our radar again. To motivate us to be brave, to have courage, even in our weakness to open our mouths, to to honestly evaluate how much we fear him and how much we fear what others will, will think of us or say to us. So why keep going? Well, since we know what it is to fear the Lord, firstly. The second one is because Christ's love compels us, verse 14 to 16. Verse 14, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. Seems to me he's saying as as Jesus dies and as we focus in on that one event, you see both, in a sense, the reason for ministry but also the example of ministry, our reason for speaking for Christ, but also the way that we do it. So the reason for, firstly, is because we'll see it in a bit in verse 21 as well. This is, this is a great exchange going on at the heart of this passage. There's a culmination of God's plan seen here in verse 21. This is where it's all been going. This is the solution of the problem of death. All roads converging here through the Bible. This is the moment Jesus dies in the place of his people. Death, death is unnatural. Some of us will know that. Some of us will know that in a painful, gut-wrenching way. The reality of that firsthand. Death is ultimately what happens when humanity walks out on the God of life. We, we shake our little fists at him. We vow to do things our own way. We'll say, we'll be fine without you, thank you, God. We'll, we'll take your stuff, but we really don't want you involved. And the word for that from the Bible is, is sin. Maybe you're here as a guest or a visitor. Maybe you're just trying us out. You perhaps wouldn't call yourself a Christian or a believer. You're not quite sure where you stand. Maybe this whole idea of sin is is new to you or it sounds archaic or a bit weird. Um, Sometimes people describe it like this. It's a little bit simplistic, so forgive me, but I think it's helpful. Um, Sometimes it's described as when we say, shove off God, I'm in charge, no to your rule. S-I-N, shove off God, I'm in charge, no to your rule. We shake our little fists at God and we say, we don't want you. We don't want you involved in our lives We just want your stuff. We don't want you. And it's what happened in the garden at the beginning, the Bible would say. But actually, it's what we do every day as well. It's the natural bent of our human hearts. And so you get rid of the God of life and in comes death. But but then comes Jesus, 
Then comes Jesus, a man who, because of extraordinary and extravagant love, dies so that we don't have to. What what better news is there? Verse 14, Jesus dies our death. One died and therefore all died. And this is the message that motivates Paul to keep going. Christ's love compels us, says Paul. I'm told the um, the compel word there is a often used in in military scenarios. It's a military um, word. It's a word that's sometimes used when a city is besieged, totally overwhelmed, surrounded, fenced in. There is no way out, no chance of getting away. And so Paul knows that, that we are totally surrounded by Christ's love. You can't go in any direction without bumping into it. And so he looks at Jesus and he just knows he has to tell others about him. He has no choice about it. He is com- compelled to. He can't get away from it. He knows he has something very, very, very good. And there's, there's more than enough to go around. And there's plenty for everyone. So he, Christ's love compels him. Christ's love compels us. Do you want a motivation to keep going? Then preach the gospel again to yourself each and every day. Realize afresh this vital message for you, as someone told you, and then open your mouth to tell others. The death of Jesus and his resurrection is is the reason for ministry. It's the message they need to hear. But more than that as well, do you see it as an example of how we do ministry too in verse 15? Do you see, we're not free agents now. We're accountable to God now. We belong to him. You don't belong to you. You belong to him. You're not your own. There's a beautiful story. It's quite possibly apocryphal, but that's okay. Um about Abraham Lincoln. And this was before the Civil War in America. It's one of my favorites. We have it in a um, children's Bible devotional at home, um, and I can genuinely barely get through it um, without uh, having to ask one of the kids to read it for me. Um, Abraham Lincoln apparently happened upon a slave auction, and he noticed from the crowd the object of the next sale And it was a beautiful young black woman stood on the auctioneer's stage and the bidding started. And the men in the crowd, they begin raising the price again and again and again. There they are appraising her with their cruel stares. And with each bid, though, Abraham Lincoln raises it one dollar higher, always outbidding them again and again and again. And finally, this, this young slave girl looks across at this tall, awkward man with suspicion and with fear. What does he want of me? And finally, the last bid is made, and, and it, it falls to young Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln pays the auctioneer. The slave girl is brought to him. Remove her chains, he orders her former captor. And the girl rubs her wrists, glaring at him in uncertainty. What are you going to do with me now, she says. Why, I'm going to set you free, miss, he answered. Free? What do you mean, free, she replies. 
I mean you are no longer a slave, you are a free person. You mean I can go anywhere I want, she exclaims. You mean I can do whatever I want, she says. Abraham Lincoln just smiles and nods his head. Then I want to be with you, she shouts. He looks down at her, puzzled. You can go anywhere. You can do anything. Why would you want to follow me, he says. Because I want to be with the one who set me free. It's a beautiful story, but it's something like what we have here. We have been redeemed. And so now we live for the one who set us free. We live for the one who loves us. He's kind and he's gracious and he's generous and he's good. He has given himself for us. And so we, what more can we do? We, we give ourselves to him because of his love for us. And so gaze upon the cross. See Christ's kindness to you. His love that compels you, hems you in, surrounds you. You haven't got a chance to get away from it. You see both his message and his example. So that's the second reason that makes Paul tick and keeps him ticking. The third one is there because we are ambassadors of reconciliation, verse 17 to 21. Of course, these verses could be four four sermons, if not more. So forgive me. Um, Do come to home groups. Do dig deep. We are just skimming over. There's so much richness in here. But we are ambassadors of reconciliation, verse 17 to 21. Um, the repeating word, of course, is reconciliation. You, verse 18, do you see all this is from God who reconciled us to himself, end of verse 19, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. And maybe we say, what do we need reconciling for or to or what? Verse 19, that, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. You see, that the need for reconciliation presupposes it is necessary and is necessary because we have been separated from God. It's that shove off God, I'm in charge, no to your rule thing again. We, we are not okay with him. Things are not good with God naturally. And so reconciliation comes when God does not count people's sins against them anymore. Because of Christ. And so zoom in on verse 17. Therefore, famous verse, therefore if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. We touched on a similar idea back at the start of chapter 4, but sin is a, a decreating work. It undoes what God has done. And so as sin is dealt with in the gospel, so people become new creations. God speaks, do you remember chapter 4? God speaks and creation happens. Worlds are made from nothing. And God speaks and new creation happens. People are brought to life from death. God's power, God's word has the power to bring life. We have been recreated and reconciled, says Paul. How? Verse 20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God was making his appeal through us, 
We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And it might not be how we would do it, but, but we are God's ambassadors, says Paul. We, Paul speaking of himself first, and I take it the Corinthians, and I take it by implication us, we, we represent him to the world. We, we show the world what God is like. Christians, in all our mess, and when we get it wrong, and we are his ambassadors, an ambassador in Roman times would come as an envoy of the one who sent him, maybe an emperor or someone of real status. They would come with authority and power and influence, and so if you reject the envoy, if you reject the ambassador, you reject the one who who sent him, which in the Corinthian case, of course, to reject Paul would in fact to be reject Christ, who has sent Paul. But we are his ambassadors too. We come with his authority and message and power. We do. I mean, let that sink in. Proverbially, scan through your diary for this week. The stuff that you've got going on. The the people you'll see this week. The places you'll go, the things you will do, we are his ambassadors. And so at the very heart of Paul's ministry, he says, is reconciliation. Primarily reconciliation between the God who made us and a people who have walked out on him. We are his ambassadors, we come with his message and we bring life. But then again, verse 21, again, you seem to get in concentrated, boiled down, climactic form, the core of this recreating, reconciliating, reconciling maybe, message. Verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. A famous verse, beautiful symmetry. This gracious swap there, this loving substitution there. God the Son becomes sin for us. And we, joined to the Son by faith, become the righteousness of God. Our guilt goes to him. His righteousness comes to us. A beautiful swap. A substitution. We, we sing about it often. It strikes me that what's interesting here is that this is not just some kind of trick that God reveals out of nowhere. Sometimes people don't like verses like verse 21 because they just say it's too simplistic or it's unkind or what's going on. This idea of substitution and sacrifice, it seems to me, is a central drumbeat of the whole of the um, story of the Bible. It seems to expand in scope as you work your way through. This seems to be a a culmination and a climax of that. So just to sort of scoot through um, far too quickly. Take, for example, Genesis 22, Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah. An exchange there. One sacrifice for one person. Fast forward, Exodus 12, Passover, one sacrifice for a family. 
Fast forward again, Leviticus 16, Day of Atonement, if you were around last week on the evening with Dave. A, a sacrifice for a people. Then Isaiah 53, fast forward again, and you get a sacrifice for the nations, for the peoples of the world. At the heart of the storyline of the Bible, we have loving sacrifice, a gracious swap. And yet here we have where it was all pointing. Christ substituted for us, not as some sort of unwilling, innocent third party. That is just a caricature. But the eternal second person of the Trinity, taking on flesh, willingly punished, because of his love for us. So that our sin could be dealt with. So that where we say, shove off God, I'm in charge, no to your rule... God does not count that against us because Christ is punished for us. That is the heart of our faith. In fact, I wonder whether verse 21 is the foundation verse of this whole section. It seems to me it is the key that unlocks loads of what's going on. So verse 14, it explains how he died for all. Verse 14 again, it explains how his love is revealed to us. Verse 17, it explains how new creations are brought about. Verse 18, it explains how God reconciles a people to himself. Verse 19, it explains how God no longer counts sins against his people. It is the core of the gospel. Often it's a memory verse. In fact, if you've not memorized it, maybe that's a job for this week. It's a good verse to remember because it is what people need to hear because it is what we need to hear. Because we never move on from 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. Why keep going? Because we fear the Lord. Because Christ's love compels us. Because we are ambassadors of reconciliation. And fourthly, and briefly, because this is the day of salvation. 6 verse 1 to 2. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I helped you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you now, this is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. This is it. This is it. This is the day. The new day of salvation. This is the day of God's grace, brought in by Christ's death and resurrection. The new creation, in one sense, has started. And Paul is quoting from Isaiah. If you see the little um, footnote there, Isaiah 49, verse 8. There is Isaiah, binoculars pressed against his face, looking ahead to a time when Israel would be rebuilt and restored, when God's people would be gathered in again, because currently they're in exile, and they're scattered, and they're away from the land, and God's promises look useless. But now is the time they've been waiting for. It's here. This is the time of restoration and salvation. This is where Isaiah was looking, says Paul. And he says to the Corinthians, and he says to us, you are so privileged living after the cross. You are so privileged to be living after 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. Don't don't receive that grace in vain. Don't jump off the lifeboat. Why would you do that? Now is the day of salvation. This is the time to believe it. This is the time to tell others. Now is the time of God's favor. 
This is the day. And we can forget this, but it means that conversation with someone really can change everything. It can genuinely change someone's eternal destiny. A five-minute talk, a five-minute chat, prayerful, courageous, faltering, open mouth to talk about Christ. It can bring recreation and reconciliation. Chew on that this week. Think about that at the community barbecue in a bit. It's still raining. Think about that as you pray about inviting for Christmas. You're thinking, who, who can we bring along to, to services or whatever it might be? Or even, who, who's that person in my life, on my radar, who I just find it hard to talk to and so I just don't bother anymore? Why, why keep going when we look so weak and foolish? Well, because we fear the Lord. One day we will have to stand before him accountable for, for what we've done with what he's given us. For a message that has transformed us. A message that can transform others. Why? Because Christ's love compels us. He, he surrounded us. We can't get away from it. It shapes what we say and it shapes how we live for him now. Why? Because we are ambassadors of reconciliation. We, we represent him. You bring his message of, of recreation and reconciliation. And why? Because this is the day of salvation. Because one day, Jesus will return. And that day will be over. But it's here and now. And so our words can change things now. I'm aware that there's lots to think about there. So I'm going to suggest we have a couple of minutes of silence, opportunity just to pray quietly in our hearts, and then I will lead us in a prayer of response. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for thank you for the glorious gospel message that has has rescued us if we're here as believers. Thank you for your extraordinary love and kindness. Thank you for the reconciliation that the death of your son has brought about.
and yet we pray you'd help us to keep going. We confess that we find it hard at times. We find it hard to to keep living for you, to keep speaking of you. Perhaps we're bruised, perhaps we're fearful. But pray with Paul we would give ourselves the little pep talks we need to keep going. To remember the truths we've thought about in this passage that that one day we will stand before you. That the love of Christ would compel us. That we would know our status as ambassadors. And because this is the day of salvation. Help us please to fear your verdict more than the verdict of others. In Jesus' name, amen.